Welcome to this week's episode of The Core. In the episode, we are looking to explore the intersection of cybersecurity and human behaviour. In today's episode, we'll discuss the importance of adopting a defensive mindset when dealing with cyber attacks. Instead of just viewing them as a technically savvy thing, we're actually seeing that it's more about humans, that we can make errors, and to be honest, we're just going to be exploited because we're human beings at the end of the day. Um, I've got a lovely guest speaker who we've actually only quickly met online just now, but are realising that our paths are crossing in um, industry dinners that we like to attend. So Rob, thank you so much for being a guest of the core. Um, Rob, for anyone that doesn't know you or your background or what you do, would you be able to introduce yourself to the audience and just tell them a little bit about you and how you have also joined this crazy journey of being in cybersecurity? Absolutely. And, and thanks, Kelly, for the invite. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So yeah. um, I'm, I'm a bit of an imposter in cyber, if I'm honest. Um, I can't fix computers. I can't code. Um, I can't read logs very easily. So I wouldn't be doing very well in any of my uh, technical qualification um, degrees or, or anything like that. But I feel like I've made a valuable contribution in my entire career in cyber, uh, which has probably been about nearly 15 years now. So we're just, just over, yeah, nearly 15. Um, I started off as a civil servant working in the Ministry of Defence, where I was a strategy analyst, helping them think about the ways we fight wars. And I ended up doing a range of different things from uh, thinking about how we improve the the ability to have an effect on the decision-making of our, our enemy leadership so they would back down more quickly. Mm. Um, I chased some pirates off Somalia, or I helped the navies chase some pirates off Somalia. I was in a windowless office helping doing the planning, but it sounds better if I say I chased the pirates. <laughs> um I did some work looking at the Olympic security and when we won the bid for the Olympics in London, which was ah, an interesting challenge for I us. I like the Olympics. There we go. Cross paths in that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. And again, so was, I, I had this fascinating kind of variety that I wasn't expecting. And then um, and then I guess some point in, in just after 2010, um, I, I kind of realised that um, the world was changing and had changed and actually warfare was going to change quite considerably because of this thing called cyberspace and the virtual domain that we're operating in. And I think more importantly to me, I could get paid for playing on a computer and that sounded quite good fun. Um, so I ended up working part of my role in, in the, the MOD, bringing through all the human science research that we had been doing on understanding how we influence key leaders, how do we build a negotiation strategy, bringing through all that research and understanding of people into how do we apply it into cyberspace. So how do we understand how to engage? How do we build trust? How do how do people like me and you build trust through this computer-mediated existence? We're on, we're on a you know on a team's call at the moment, and we're what what are the normal behaviours of trust building? It's usually a handshake. What does that look like in the virtual world? Yeah. Is it through an email and so on? So how does that fit and how does that apply? Particularly because this was going to become a major tool of statecraft. Whether it became a tool of warfare or not is a big question we can debate. But actually, states were going to be using this to influence populations, to shape agendas, to shape narratives, and we've seen that play out quite considerably over the last few years. Um, I don't need to mention any uh, particularly uh, Brexit referendums or US presidential elections where certain nations might have been tinkering. And, and that shows like, a real power of this virtual domain before we even move into the sort of cyberspace and cyber operations in a more technical sense. So for me, it was a real eye-opening experience and, and an opportunity to really think about a new application of statecraft and, and this virtual domain coming together. So technology, society, and state state power coming all fed together in that. Um, so I did that for a few years. And then after that, I moved to Defence Academy, where I'm still based, and I teach on the Cyber Masters that the MOD runs. 
I spend my time getting the military personnel to think about integrating cyber into warfare. So does cyber fit more like intelligence operations? Does it fit like warfare? What rules of war do we have to observe when we're thinking about cyber? If I cyber you, can you return force, like physical force? Mm. If someone cybers me, can I return with physical force? All those questions at the international level, you know, particularly around the uh, Russian military intervention in, in Ukraine, for example, and, and the cyber aspects of that, absolutely what we're discussing and exploring. And then after that, I am, or I still do that, but alongside that, um, I set up, I helped set up the National Cyber Deception Lab and ran that for a few years as deputy director, looking at the use of deception as a way of fighting our attackers in cyberspace. And I'm sure we're talking to that a bit more. And I've got a couple more hats just to keep everyone on their toes. Um, I uh, helped the uh, Wilton Park, which is a part of the Foreign Office, where we organise policy dialogues and conversations on key topics of UK importance. So I helped them run some events on cyber, looking at what does acting responsibly in cyberspace look like and bringing different representatives from around the globe and industry and academia together to, to really discuss what we mean by that and how we should do that. Um, I run the UK Cyber 912 Strategy Challenge, which is a university student competition, which is all about bringing multidisciplinary skills into cyber, diversity of thinking, diversity of backgrounds, to really up, up the consideration of cyber away from it just being a purely technical focused aspect. And then finally, perhaps last but not least, um, I'm a, an event host with RAN and I help Ran, build, deliver and build some great events uh, where we bring members of the CISO communities or senior technologists and organizations together to address certain issues and explore the implications of those issues for their day jobs and what they might need in order to be better prepared to address those as well. So I think you've answered whether you have enough experience to discuss cybersecurity on a podcast. Do you eat and sleep Absolutely. is my next question. Uh, yeah, I definitely do. Um, uh, when do you really, fit that in? I don't feel in? like I have that experience. Yeah, I don't feel like I have that experience in it because it's a... I, and I think this is a challenge for the industry. So this isn't just woe is me. I, and I don't mean it's woe is me. I love what I do. I love the work. I love the variety. But I think there's a constant battle against this technology-centric approach because there's shiny things that we need to be thinking about. And we do need to appreciate these shiny things and we need to understand them. But actually, cybersecurity is an existential issue for any business and organization. If we're not thinking at it at the strategic business business focus level, then I think we're missing a trick. So we need people who get the technology, who get the issues, but can speak that language across the board, to the board, to the other parts of the organisation. We cannot have cybersecurity siloed like the IT team. We need to have cyber security integrated across all aspects of any organisation. And I think that's where we need to change our approach at times, because I think we default to seeing it as a siloed technical area rather than a all-encompassing area. Yeah, that is just an IT problem, and I don't need to worry about that. And yeah, and and I, I it, is, it is complicated, and it is... It's, it's comp- I think because you do think to get into cybersecurity, you do need to be very technical. Um, I know when we recruit, um, even with the sales team, and um, and even when I started from a marketing, I, because what I would, we'd get, we'd we'd sell a technology, and I, I would be like, well, what does that actually mean in human terms? And um, and I think because the technology is very sophisticated in what it can do, it can also complicate the conversation that you're trying to have about something absolutely um and i think um marketeers have been good at throwing quite a few complicated jargon or making things sound far more complicated than maybe they need to be um but yeah i think i mean just yeah diverse more people involved people more people talking about it and for me we talk about security physically like if you were in an office you wouldn't even think twice about locked doors or um you know people signing in and signing out um you you just you know fire safety windows are shut um all these things that we just do 
as standard, I think that's hopefully where the mentality is going to shift from a digital perspective. And I think that is exactly that, weaving it into standard daily business, weaving it into every aspect of the organization. So it becomes the norm. And actually, I get very frustrated with people who refer to humans as the weakest link when it comes to mm. cybersecurity. Because to me, that is a highlight of we're looking at it as a technical issue and we're not actually looking at it as a social technical issue, which is we all operate together almost in an augmented way. And if we're designing a technical system or a technical platform or where it might be, service, that allows us to have the option to blame the human for being the weakest link, it means we haven't really understood the system we're operating in and the social technical components of it. And that's where we really need to change our focus. Interesting. So there's so much to unpack with this, with this topic um, because obviously the front landscape is evolving all the time and we're having to reframe and our perspectives Obviously, you come from a defence and a military background. I assume you don't. The background wasn't your army or your navy or your weakest link. <laughs> I wouldn't really be the right well, mind, mindset for them going in. But they were always evolving threats. Things could pop up. Things were different. So, how, from a defensive background, um, do you think there's things that we can apply in the digital side of things? Well, I, I think you bring an interesting point because I think if you look at some of the initial campaigns in in you know in the public arena, you know, thinking about spear phishing, I think the, the message was, you know, don't be the weakest leak um and be careful about that. And I think that probably applied in the military when it came to cyber as well. Make sure you don't okay. let slip, don't do this as well. Um so I think we've gone on an evolution because I don't see that messaging as much anymore. Mm. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's there's always strategic issues of, you know, someone doing something they shouldn't in the military and you know, perhaps um, stepping across the line or, or, or doing that and that becoming a problem. But you don't see that kind of narrative of being kind of quite prominent in the military. I think there are different risk calculations and risk considerations in the military that do and should come across. So I think because we've come from an IT background in cybersecurity, the provision of the service and maintaining the service is seen as the goal. Okay. And as a result, all of the risk considerations are primarily around that. In the military there's a much more healthier appreciation of absorbing damage mm. and accepting pain because someone's going to be shooting at you quite literally. Mm. So you have to make a decision when you leave the base every day as to what armor are you going to take and where, or what might you be, your, what protection you're using. And that might slow you down in terms of how quickly you can walk, how quickly you can run, how long you can be outside for, etc. But you have to make that calculation. The problem I think in the cybersecurity world is that that, willingness to be comfortable accepting damage is quite an alien perspective to be in that willingness to realize that we are under attack and therefore our systems might be compromised in some way and we might not be operating efficiently for a period of time isn't an acceptable or manageable business decision when you're reporting into the board who are asking you why our servers aren't up 100 why we're not providing that service 100 of the time and i think that's where we've got to really revisit our assumptions here because this isn't just about technology provision and service provision. This is about recognizing we are under attack. And this isn't me just kind of engendering fear and encouraging everyone to take a, a you know, a, a paranoid approach. You know, look at the data, look at your attack logs, look at your logs, look at how many attacks are coming in, look at the different types of attackers. Any organization we talk to, I'm sure will be experiencing some form of cyber attack at some point soon. It's a, le it's a, le it's a level of empathy, though, into the situation, right? So um, think of any war that would be going on. There would be an empathy that that 
country or that area is not operating to its full capacity that the stock the shops aren't stocked with every good that you would expect that yep. nurseries and schools aren't running at normal that the normal routes of roads aren't going as they should be yep. like all those things if we discuss that would be like well yeah that's that's normal they're they're in war but from a yep. digital perspective we don't have that same empathy empathy of the environment that maybe things are down and things aren't operating as they are because of a safety precaution or, you know, whatever decision. And interesting with like the collateral damage and the impact of that, it reminds me of another podcast I did probably about a year ago um, with Charlie Morris from, um, he works for the police, on how our victim mentality on if it's done in person is so different to our victim mentality of someone if it's done digitally. Um, You would... If you were a victim of crime, whether that was rape or burglary or anything like that, you wouldn't then send that person on a training course the next day. Fishing, however, have been traditionally known that someone makes that mistake and you get put yeah. on a fishing training yeah. course. It's just... But, but I think also the challenge there is the, the differentiation between the actual committing, which might be the poor behaviour, mm. and the potential impact being felt. So, yeah, you know, if you... If you click on the spearfishing link, you might not personally feel the effect of that, but the organisation might suffer massively. So there's a dislocation there. Mm. And I think actually bringing that into the conversation and understanding that is, is a real headache for people as well because, you know, actually you're not feeling the pain. In the same way, if we think of the attackers, if you think of burglars or whatever, it's the probability of detection versus the severity of the punishment. They're the two factors that seem to shape um, decision-making or criminal, criminal theory. Yeah, so, you know, Probability of detection, number of police officers on the beat, public issue, a political issue, you know, who's investing in the police at the moment, you know, mm. always in the news, and severity of punishment. How long should they be in prison? What is the role of prison? Should they be going to prison for these crimes? Should they be let off? Again, another political issue. But it's that calculus that's playing up. We bring that calculus into cyber. Probability of getting caught? Well, define getting caught, first of all. Probability yeah. of being detected, perhaps. Probably severity of punishment. You might get booted off the system. You might, if you're really nasty, get a letter from the, um, or get a poster from the FBI with your face on it because you're part of the Russian GRU. But that's only if you're really nasty. I mean, not much of a severity of punishment here. And that's the challenge. That's not a criticism of the FBI or the NCSC or anything like that. It just it's shows the, the challenge is. of this digital world. And it's a new world, isn't I it? And I think that means we have to empower our defenders to take more, more proactive activities inside our networks to make the attackers become more conscious of the fact that we might know they're there and we might be dissuading them, shaping their decision-making, so they have to make better or worse decisions for them, better decisions for us. And this kind of ties into the point of, like, that cyber attackers are not faceless, not they are human beings. On the other line, we were having this conversation in the previous podcast, they are not the teenager in the hoodie in the basement anymore um they are a diverse collective group of people that are humans and, ag- and again i think this is where the industry lets itself down a bit so you know if i'm calling us out then so be it i'll hold my hands up i'm part of the industry but you know we either imagine an attacker as a hoodie wearing kitty in the basement probably not got out very much and needs to get some fresh air and they have been instances of that i'm not going to lie or we refer to them as a fuzzy, cuddly toy animal. We'll give them a dodgy nickname because we don't want to give them any more specifics because of the geopolitical implications that might have, which I totally understand. 
But what that means is we do not consider the dimensions of the threat characteristics we need to. And if I speak to anyone in the military and ask them for a definition of threat, they will tell me it's capability by intent. But in our space, I think we limit threat to be capability. We can map them against the MITRE, mm. you know, MITRE rankings and say, oh, yeah, APT28 has all of these indicators. That's what it looks like. Okay, well, how does APT28 make decisions? What is it looking for? How is it making decisions as it moves through your network? Because that becomes an attack surface to us that we can exploit and we can use that in our defense against them. And at the moment, as we focus on technology, technology-centric understanding of the threat, we miss that dimension completely. How can we do better then? Well, I feel that this is where we've got some real opportunity to be creative and perhaps bring in a variety of different diverse perspectives on this. But let's um, let's look at the computer games industry. I'm sure many of us have played computer games. There's been some really frustrating moments in some of my computer games when I've been up against an end-of-level bad guy. Now, there's a particular computer games designer who is very much focused on encouraging rage quitting amongst the the people who use the computer games. The idea that they get so annoyed, so angry at coming up against this end-of-level bad guy that they pretty much throw their keyboard at the monitor or throw it out the window and throw their computer across the, ta- across the table and they walk off in a huff. And we've all been, I'm sure, in those moments where there's been a particularly frustrating part of a computer game that we've just gone, can't do this anymore, and stormed off. If they can do that in a computer game, which is a virtual environment that we're choosing to play in, why can't we do that in our networks for the bad guys? Yeah. So what are we what are we doing to frustrate them? What are we doing them to make them question themselves? What are we doing to make them fearful of taking that step or questioning whether that step is a worthwhile step to take? There's been some great examples um, in in recent year. One of the earliest examples was the, the US. The Soviet Union were hacking into the some research arms of or some industries, I can't remember which industries it was, but and stealing data. And this data was on a range of different topics, including pipelines. And the Soviet Union went and built a pipeline, um, quite a significantly large pipeline. Now, whether it be the FBI or the CIA, they got involved, they poisoned the data, and the data that was taken back by the Soviet Union was compromised. They had no way of knowing it was compromised until they built the pipeline and started trying to use it. Mm. And that caused an explosion. The explosion was actually seen in space. Now, that was quite a significant effect. But what's really interesting is the moment they realized that they had used poison data, those who had been extracting that information had to question absolutely everything that had been extracted. Not just the data about the pipeline, but all the other data they stolen. And then they had to put effort into seeing if it was legitimate data or valid data, or they had to make decisions to discard it all and start again. That's where we can frustrate our attackers because they've got resource issues. They've got team issues. They've got tool issues. We've seen it with the Conti leaks when there's frustrations between different teams because one team's getting paid more than the other. We've seen it where they're actually individuals operating just like us. But when we come to defending against them, we just refer to them as a technical capability. Hmm. And we spend so much time thinking about the human and cybersecurity on the other side, make sure we've done all the training for spear phishing, make sure we yeah. understand that you know, social engineering is a problem for us because we're humans and we might be exploited by social engineering, ringing up, pretending to be the chief exec, ringing up the IT help desk, getting the access and something like that. Why are we using those same techniques back. against them? And that's not involved. That doesn't need to be talking about hack back, which is a you know sensitive issue. I don't think you even need to encourage that. What are we doing? If they're, if they're inside our networks and we know them in our networks 
and we're able to study and monitor them long enough to get some information about them and do the open source investigations, why not put enough information in a nice, shiny honey token of some mm. kind or honey document of some kind? They look at it because it's part of their discovery. They look at it and they realize not only do we know they're in the network, but we know where they live. And at that point, it's a bit like Liam Neeson. I don't know who you are, but I'm going to come and find you. <laughs> and we might not be able to come and find you, but in their heads, they're going to have a very different thought process. Now they know not only that we know they're in the network, but we've actually doxed them. We might not have made it public, but we know that they are. Now that might be aspirational. That might be quite a challenge. I get that. But why not have a play on that? All, all of us have been to the seaside towns and seen a fortune teller being able to tell you our future, mm-hmm. a fortune about what's going to happen in the future, or being able to a spiritualist who might be able to bring um, or make contact with some of your long lost relatives and, and give you some really significant information. Now, there might be some of those that are true, but there might be a few of them who are fraudulent. And those ones which are fraudulent use a series of techniques to use linguistic techniques and hedges and so on to make you believe they know information about you. So they say things in such a way that you interpret it as if it's true. true yeah. So, Cole, why don't we use those techniques? It's exactly the same. And why do you think we're not doing it? Because it's not technology. Okay. Because that's a safe hey, space. And we know that space. Uh, that's, you know, the NSA did a piece of work a few years ago. They ran um, a pen test against the network. They had two different sets of pen testers. One set of pen testers, they said, attack the network. And the other set of pen testers, they said, attack the network, but just to let you know, deception's been deployed on it. And guess what? The pen testers who didn't know deception had been deployed on it progressed through the network much more quickly. The pen testers who were told that deception was deployed on it moved through the network more slowly. They questioned everything. That port over there looks open. I'm not sure it's supposed to be open. That must be the deceptive bit. They must be doing that for mm-hmm. us. Let's, do, let's double check that before we proceed. Oh, we can't get into that print server. Why is that? Our tool should work. Yeah, perhaps that's the thing. Perhaps that's the plan. Let's go down that area. Well, let's go down there, but let's also check down there because that might be where they want us to go. And they progressed more slowly. It took them longer to achieve their objectives. What was the capability there? They're using deception. Shh. Yeah. That's not a technical capability. They, they made them overthink though, didn't they? Overthink, question well, every it's decision. It's about playing that. Yeah. So that's why I mean, that's that attack dimension. If we see threat as capability only, we're not thinking about intent and decision-making. And actually that has to go together to make the threat criteria complete. How do you think we can shift to that? I think we can easily shift to that, but I think it involves us becoming perhaps more willing to become the end of level bad guys in our networks. You know, let's have our SOC operators, empower them to fight back, empower them, not necessarily to hack back, empower them to engage with the attacker, to think about what traps you would lay to engage with them as they move through the network. Rather than just observe or build the walls up, wait for them to arrive, hopefully they stay out, and then when they get inside, do a bit of incident response and mopping up. Let's build our teams to engage and fight in our networks. What are the sliding doors we can introduce? How can we introduce techniques from medieval history and you know castle? Trojan dish? horse. How do we put that into our networks? Yeah, exactly. What's the Trojan horse equivalent? I mean, I've always found, and when you talk about it like this, it kind of makes it sounds awful, but like I find cybersecurity quite exciting, kind of like spy films and, and, and kind of ties in with the whole, you know, going to war and military and all this and, and deception and things like that. How, 
how do you think we can encourage people to get involved in cybersecurity? Because there is a balance of a fight for good, of a fight for evil, isn't there? In the sense that if you are very talented in this, you could go one way. And I've talked to people that started one way and have come back to the other side. Some people, you know, if they hadn't had the right guidance and mentors may have gone a different way. You're obviously very much with your 912 challenge trying to get the next um, talent pool in. Um, and how you just described it about you know deception and different ideas and honeypotting and stuff like that that kind of makes it even more exciting than just the technical technical side of this so how do you think the challenges that you run and um talking like this and opening eyes on how cybersecurity we can see in a different way encourages the next generation to join us um i think there's a range of different um, initiatives already going on, particularly by the police and law enforcement communities to make sure those people who are at a tipping point between good and bad, for mm. example, uh, choose or nudged in the right direction. And I think there are there is a, probably a, a considerable subset of um, the younger population that will have a decision point at that point. And I think we need to do our best to kind of encourage and, and herd them in the right direction for sure. But I think more broader than that and, and not focused on that tipping point, I think is actually illuminating them and, and breaking down those barriers um, you know, I know there's a huge range of efforts about encouraging diversity in cyber and, and I'm all for them to be honest, because actually we're dealing in this age where we're dealing with you know a high level of complexity. Our networks are so complicated and confusing, even if you're a technical specialist, it's really difficult to understand your terrain. We're dealing with a range of different threat actors who are evolving every night. So actually coming with a set of standard approaches isn't going to be enough anymore. Mm. We're going to be needing kind of mental agility, cognitive agility. And that's going to be by bringing different people in with different perspectives and to excite them as to why they can add value and how their background does add value, even if it isn't the standard approach. And that's very much what we do with the UK Summer 12 Strategy Challenge. It's just illuminate interesting options, interesting careers, interesting roles. You know, they might be engaging here in this, in this company. They might be talking with these insurance company about how they would support a client in um, a ransomware attack. And they realise at that point, they're not having to just focus on the technical aspects. They have to talk to technical teams, but they're actually doing a relationship management or engaging with the board in this company and helping them at their, their toughest time. It might be more kind of crisis management and mm. contingency planning, business continuity planning, which we kind of lose sight of because we call everything cyber. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't call everything cyber, but actually the, the multitude of topics, areas, roles under cyber are so vast, I'm mm. pretty sure there's a role for everyone. And it's exciting. It should be exciting. I think if we're not, and, and I, you know, I, I was at a conference earlier this week on um, mental health in cybersecurity and, and the stats of the number of people who are struggling with mental health issues and burnout and so on. And I think it's because we don't necessarily empower them to be resilient and give them the strategies for dealing with this uncertainty because we just expect the handle turn of the technical approaches in the past. But I'm also it's quite interesting with your your background in military and defence in that I'm imagining from a military preparation of war or being under attack or post-war or um, I, I know there's probably a lot of mechanisms and research and things of like how, how that can be supported better. The cyber thing is all quite new, isn't it? So like if you're, I don't know, a SOC team and you're constantly under attack and it's 24 7 um like i know it's not actual um ammunition being fired into you but it is that constant stress it's 24 7 it's some of the people are working shift work which changes yep. eating habits dietary all this we had a really interesting um podcast with um a lady who's just joined a sock team and she said that she had to change when she ate and what 
um, vitamins she was taking and got a sad lamp and all these yep. things for when she was doing her night shift because she found it impacted her productivity in the job. Um, it's all kind of an unknown, isn't it? This new cyber war impact burnout kind of thing on digital. Well, it is in cyber. Yeah. But it's not, an un, you know, and, and I think the key thing you were talking about in that example, that lady, it isn't just about well-being of staff. Now, well-being of staff is important, mm. but it's well-being of staff because if they're not fully functional and fully effective, it's impacting their performance. The equivalent would be going to a sports team and going, we're going to change your habits. We're going to change everything. And, you know, we're going to make sure you've got a, you know the, the welfare support you need, um, but that's okay. Actually, no, every decision, if you think of, um, oh, the Olympic, British Olympic team or, or where it might be, marginal gains was the key thing. Second what did team, we need yeah. to do across the board? What technical tweaks do we need to do to the kit? What psychological tweaks do we need to do to the team members? What mental support could we give them? All about improving their performance, not just about the well-being alone. And I, I say, I don't want to sound as though I'm being dismissive of well-being no. programs, but it's well-being programs for operational effectiveness. And I think there's loads of communities. So in cyber, this might be quite new. I completely agree. Cyber is a new domain. Frontline responders, you know, blue lights teams, whether it be ambulance, fire brigades, police, how do they cope with and what strategies have they got put in place for after incident response? Do they mm -hmm. go straight back out on the beat? Do they have some downtime? I know the military have a phased preparation for deployment and then they have some significant periods of downtime where they're back in, in, you know, back in the UK preparing before they then roll out again a bit later. So where does that sit with the SOC team? Yeah. You know, um, I, again, I think there's so many lessons we could, you're looking at how do you share expertise? There's some great, um, Great, a great field of science called naturalistic decision making, looking at how experts share their knowledge. Okay. Because it's quite easy to share, to, it's quite easy to become an expert, but it's quite difficult to communicate your expertise to others. Mm -hmm. So, how do we get an expert cyber security person to bring the junior staff up and share their knowledge and help build them in and build that capability up? What techniques are we learning from? The fire brigade have, look, have looked at that and you know, use, use naturalistic decision making to help them. So there is a there's a realm of alternative disciplines that we could take best practice from. I'll use another example. There was some work done in air traffic control teams. Um, looking at, you know, you can imagine air traffic controls have to stare at quite a big screen. There's lots of yeah. moving things going wrong. And you don't want them to miss the fact that plane A and plane B are going on a path yeah. with each other. Not something you want them to miss. So how has technology been used to help highlight those issues? This is a human technology system, social technological system. There might be alerts on the screen to draw their attention, but there might also be tools monitoring how much eye movement the air traffic control person is doing to see if they're getting a little bit sleepy okay. or to see if they're paying attention to all sides of the screen. So would those tools be useful in cybersecurity? If you're looking at logs all day, you know, yeah. how do we make sure you don't miss a log? Um, airport security. You know, the job, you, know, you go through airport security, someone is sitting there scanning your bags to see if you've got any explosives or any dodgy materials you're not allowed. They have alerts. They get monitored. It isn't seen as, it isn't seen as an issue if they miss one of the, um, one of the fake bomb-like images that goes through because it gets flagged up and they get given a break. So they, they are tested regularly on the job to make sure they're being and alert and aware. They must have some sort of statistics of like operation, like operational time, like how long you can actually look at those screens before you start phasing yeah. out. And we've probably not even looked yeah. into that in cyber. That's exactly where I think there's loads of techniques we could bring across or loads of research we could 
utilize from other domains and then apply our domain to see to give us an idea what is your ideal stock operating time how long do you need a team in before they set up how much of a handover between teams do you need mm. all those questions i think we need to add rigor to but a lot of these things is the lack of people joining our industry because the only way for more downtime for socks and to more rotation is obviously to have more people in our teams and i think it's the whole chicken and egg thing isn't it of getting more people involved in the industry and their expertise and those people that have helped you know the software that was created for all these different areas in our lives like air traffic control and stuff like that to kind of join the cybersecurity side and bring that and, and i think that's where we're talking about convergence and i think that's mm -hmm. the key thing here is you can design software in silo and then you get your accreditor or your auditor or your security person to go oh hang on a sec have you thought about security and then you have to go and revisit everything and think about security so how do we bake that in early, early how do we make cybersecurity as standard across the business so that everyone is comfortable knowing this is something they need to consider and weave into what they're doing. That reduces the burden on the cybersecurity team. I do agree resources is an issue and we can't have 101 stock operators produced overnight. But, mm. you know, actually there's a lot more we can do that would make the organisation more refined with regards to, and more efficient with regards to cyber rather than just it becoming a, a hurdle and a blocker on everything. There's a lot to be done. <laughs> Yeah, and it's exciting though, isn't it? I mean, this is I. It's it's horrendous if you're under attack and you're being, you know, a victim of a, a, a cyber attack and cyber operation. I completely agree. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And it can be catastrophic to a person. It can be to an organisation and so on. So, you know, unfortunately, we're not in a world where we can just dismiss it. No. But actually, I think you know to see the scale of the industry that has come around because of this, because we need to, you know, the the resources that you do need to invest in it in order to ensure the successful delivery of your business or your organization means that we have to get this right. And it means that we have to be, I think, pretty forward-leaning and proactive in these approaches rather than just um, passive and rather um, focused on ticking the assurance box. Actually, it's not about assurance. It's about making sure your business survives. What do we need to do to keep that business not only surviving, but being ahead of the others? And also, going back to collateral damage is also the business survives, but the people in it too. Mm, yeah. Because the, the yeah. whole point of this is the human element of it as well. Sure. And the, the, yeah. the, there is always going to be collateral and damage from it. I, and I, I, I completely agree, but I also, I mean, one of the biggest hurdles in the cyber industry at the moment is people get paid quite a lot of money for doing some of the tasks and there's not much... Um, organizational loyalty at the front line because you're you kind of I think I think I've seen some stats the other this the average CISO is in post for less than two, two years. years you know they, they get hit they survive the attack it's probably time to move on or they come in they do two years worth of work then they burn out a bit and then they move on and get another break so we have this regular churn mm. the criteria I am pretty sure as to whether or not you stay in your job or you move to a competitor is how much you're getting paid because the job's pretty much the same anywhere else but if we can empower individuals, the SOC operators, as he said, to feel like they are owning the fight a little bit more and that they've got the support of the board to be much more proactive in designing appropriate reactions and appropriate defence postures, that's going to feel like you're a cyber ninja. You're going to want to do that compared to just sit there being passive, being told, oh, there's another attack coming, check that log. This is about empowering them and getting them excited. The military don't pay very well, but guess what? People still sign up Day. and work for the military hmm. as a cause. Yeah. So it's not all about money. I think it's about empowering people to have a fulfilling job and allow them to 
you know, really engaged. You know, some of the ethical hackers or some of the ex-hackers who've now become quite, you know, established in the industry, you know, but they love what they do. They love doing it. Now they love doing it for the, the right team, as it were. So let them play, let them get involved, but let's not hold their hands behind their back. Let them get stuck into building appropriate defences. I like that. It's a, it's a, it's allow, yeah, it's allowing those people that are passionate about it to really make a difference. I think if you don't, if someone doesn't feel like they're having an impact or their ideas that they've put out there aren't going to become fruitful, then like you said, you get really demotivated. And you get bored, demotivated, and you know what? And and in today's um, in today's kind of digitally discon- digitally enabled disconnected world, I mean, if that isn't an oxymoron, but you know, I don't even have to sit with my teammates anymore. My teammates could be the owner of teams in another country, but I'm also probably on a Slack channel with some friends or another WhatsApp group with some other friends. You know what? I've had a really poor review. I've had six months of absolute hell in this job. No one's appreciated me. Oh, you know what, Rob? Well, why don't you come and work for us? We've got some jobs going. It's probably get you 10, 15, 20, 30K more. Come and work for us. What incentive have I got? There's no, yeah. none of the social support structures of the old ways of working. I'm not saying we should go back to the old ways of working, but none of those social support structures, the manager being able to see whether you're slightly disillusioned, if you're slightly burnt out, because we're disconnected. So actually understanding what the new support structures we need to put in place are to keep people engaged, you know, I think is a really key challenge for organisations. There's lots of, challenges isn't it with all the digitization of all the good that comes of it it also and going back to the whole fact of the conversation about this being a human factor of cybersecurity is that we are human beings we do yeah. need that collaboration we are social beings um by yeah. nature um even it's very hard to read someone over online of whether they're okay. We can all put a fake mask on uh, coming, joining a Zoom call or, or not, you know, it's just a fraction of the time. And like you said, it's really yep. easy to move on from a company to company if you haven't built a connection with people. Yeah. It's much harder to leave, I'd imagine, a military because you're together. There's a camaraderie, well, there's a team. I, I think they talk about fighting for your brothers in the military rather yeah. than fighting for anything else. Exactly. So, yeah, so how are we how are we getting off fighting for our brothers and sisters in cybersecurity? Let's use that analogy. Yeah. yeah. How do we build those bonds? I like that. How, rather than just and, being individuals behind a screen, it's how you make yeah, you feel and, together. And, and actually, if you're then thinking about the attacker as just something other than technology, but as a decision making, that you can do some cool things to see how they're engaged with that, you know, that's going to make it more exciting. Mm. And there's lots of research needs to be done. I'm not saying this is a complete job. There's lots of research about needs to be done so we can have confidence about what's being, what can be done and why. So this is not a finished product anyway. I just think we're just massively behind the curve in this. We talk about humans in cybersecurity and from the defensive side worrying about our own staff, but let's, t- let's put the human back into the attacker so we understand they, they're going through a series of decision points. And if we're not focusing on what decision points they're going through and trying to change their thinking for our benefit, then we're missing a trick. Unfortunately, we nearly come to our end of our time because we had a good old chat before. <laughs> so, and and I think there's more we could talk about on this topic. And I feel like we're just kind of picking like a tiny bit, and it's unraveling. And there could be loads more uh, angles and directions that we could we can go with this. I think the main thing of this is that maybe some of our angles and ways of direction of defense we need to be a little bit more open to how we can do this we need to think about it from the human element and we need to make it more inclusive how 
would you, if anyone's listening to this now, if you're in a position to make change, what would you suggest for that? Or if you're listening and potentially thinking of joining our industry, what would you suggest where they should start? Okay, it's two different questions. Two different questions, um, if, depending on the audience okay. listener, I guess, because we have very different. We yeah. have some people that are in the industry and we have some people that are just educating themselves of thinking of joining the industry. It, just joining the industry and if you're already in it, what would you do differently? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, He's writing it down, everybody. Down. He's yeah. writing it down. He's um, very concise because I've just thrown this in as a curveball because it wasn't in my brief, well, but... Well, there's more, it's giving me time to think about it as well, but I just need to write it down. Um, so if you're just joining the industry, I'll, I would, if I was just joining the industry now, mm. I would be reaching out and engaging with people as best I can through different initiatives to understand what their role is and see which bits of those roles resonate with you. Because I think, you know, cyber is often seen as bounded in one particular area, but yeah. there are so many, you can move into governance and risks, you can move into compliance, you can move into... They're pen testing, red teaming, blue teaming, pink teaming, you name it, color teaming, and there's something there. You can move into um, you know, the accreditation process. It, I think it really does think about what your competencies and what you enjoy doing. And you know, I, you know, there are some great opportunities to promote and sell cyber in, you know, in the sales force. So mm. you know, that might be something that's up your street, but that's cyber, but you don't see people talking about coming to cyber and do sales but that's a great industry if you want to do Same that marketing so, no you know, one thinks to go to yeah exactly in cyber yeah exactly so you know actually think what motivates you and then go out and engage with the industry and find people and just hear what they do um i'm a big advocate and this applies to those those joining the industry and those well established i'm a big advocate of being part of the community well, uh, I talked about the rant events and bringing the community together. Cyber Nine Twelve is about much bringing the community together for the new starters coming into the industry. SASIC as another organisation, but you've got loads of different organisations. And SACA, um, Women in Cybersecurity, about bringing the community together and enabling people to be part of something and get those connections, get those un- that understanding of who's who and who's doing what. So I think that is invaluable, and I think I think that I don't think that's specific to cyber. I think that's in any. Any industry, industry so yeah. um, find out what's going on find out what motivates you and interests you and see how that maps against those activities that would be my first thing and if we're in industry what would we do what would i do differently um this sounds like i'm being very picky of the cso's now and, and critical of the cso's i would make us more intelligent a customer and by that i would say find opportunities to work out what we want to be able to achieve and then start building a set of capabilities to achieve that. Mm. And I think too often, because of the strength of the marketing community, can I say that in a critical way? You may. You know, a lot of the vendors and a lot of the capabilities out there are, we are really good because we mark nine out of 10 on MITRE or we hit 45 out of 50 on this mm. and we're class A here, we've met this award, which is standard in any marketing industry. So it's just one of those things. Um, but I actually think, okay, what is it I want to achieve? And how does this product allow me to achieve that? And I don't necessarily think we always go to that. I think we say, we've got a need for this product. Which one's the best on the market? Rather than what is it I want to achieve? And I'd flip it that way. And I would one of the areas I keep on talking about, and I'm really keen to find someone who wants to do this with me. So I'm reaching out to ask people. And we talk about user experiences, user journeys for any product that we might bring to market quite regularly. You know, What's the user experience on this piece of software or this service? Let's flip the coin on that. Let's flip that. What's the user experience of our attacker in our network? 
Let's design those user experiences and then work out what we can do. And at that point, I think that changes the approach from a passive defending yourself, building that barrier as much as you can to, okay, this person is kind of weaved through here, got decisions there and so on. What can we do to engage with that and interface with that with technology and with influencing the decision-making? Oh, that sounds like a very exciting, different way of looking at it. I like that a lot. I think so. And, yeah, and I, I, I get so. it. I get it. It's, it's more, it's far more a defensive way of looking at it, which is great. I also like that I actually really do believe in what you were saying about not just buying the product because of what's on the tin. Um, yeah. When we were doing the podcast with the mental health, we actually spoke to a nutritionist and about the impact of what we eat and where you, where you want to go. And it really opened my eyes on what I was putting into my body. Um, but when you set your goal of what you want to achieve, whether that's weight loss or muscle gain or whatever you're looking for from, from a health perspective, you then know where the goal is and then you're aware of what things you need to eat. Um, or what exercise you need to do um, you know if you if you want to run a marathon you know that you've got to yep. get get your body in a certain way and eat a certain things and make sure you've got a carb load and stuff like that and there's a goal and a plan which is very different from an athlete if you are going to be a bodybuilder or if you're going to be a Let's rower see. and that's because you know your goals it's the same thing you want to be peak performance as an athlete but it's a completely different route and uh, therefore, your assessment criteria change. Completely. And what you're not doing is looking at the external criteria, say, we're brilliant in A, B, C category, we're brilliant in D and F category, and you go, which one do I pick? Because you usually at that point go, which one's my best return on investment, or how much does it cost? Does it fit within my budget? Rather than what is it I need, and which one helps me achieve that? The, the, the bodybuilding versus the yeah. cardio, whatever it might be. For and being healthy, yeah. I'll be honest, is expensive. Very expensive yep. food-wise. <laughs> Eating processed yeah. microwave meals is far more cheaper for my about them moving to yep. eating much more whole foods, more protein, more it's and it's less convenient. It's very long. Um, it yep. impacts my social life. It's not the easiest thing to do, and it's not what everyone else is doing. Um, but I get it. Like if you whatever your strategic goal is, but I also understand from the marketing and how things are done, and oh well, so and so has bought that solution, so oh, that I'm gonna. It's also quite a copycat as well. That you sure. copycat. So yeah. there's a lot of barriers and things we've got to change. But hopefully, with people like yourselves, more people reaching out, more diverse people joining the industry, things changing. I think it could be. That's why I, I personally think it's a very exciting industry to be part of because it could be very different from what it is in ten years I, time. And we and we need to be better. I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, but we've also been on quite a significant journey from an mm. from an industry that didn't exist. So yeah. Sometimes I think we do need to stop kicking ourselves, but I think in other areas we need to kick ourselves a bit harder. Um, but, you know, look at that journey we've been on. It's quite an impressive feat, to be honest. Incredible feat. I mean, it's changed so much. And I'm, I'm just coming into my eight years of it now, and it's changed loads from when I started. The amount of diverse, incredible people that I've met um, that I only think is going to make this industry more interesting, more diverse, more eclectic um, with ideas that are coming across. And I think, yeah, I think the technology that's going to come out is going to be even more exciting. But the people and the processes it, coming forward are, yeah, going to change the way of, of things we do. Thank you. Well, that's probably a positive way, way to end it on. Yeah, so, it is positive. I like this. I like this industry. There's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot to be done. But I think there's a lot of things that people have done. We've really not really known what we're getting ourselves into, ultimately. Because most people in cybersecurity, like you rightly said, do not have a cybersecurity background. They just stumbled on it because it naturally fitted some of their skill sets. 
you and all the guests today didn't wake up and go, oh, I'm an expert in cybersecurity. Most of you actually aren't technical that are leading some of the biggest cybersecurity teams or jobs or roles. So, yeah, you can't be an expert in something that didn't exist really 15 years ago. Exactly. (laughs) So thank you, Robert. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. No, absolute pleasure. And hopefully this is just the first and I'll pass across again and hopefully you will join us. Maybe we can get Tom on as well with you. Oh, we're, we're, I'm sure Tom will be happy doing a double act and uh, yeah, you know what it's like. So yeah, I'm sure well, I say look forward to overlapping in future. Yes, uh, hopefully see you uh, in Manchester. Well. Sounds good.